Hi, everyone. This is Dave Newbert, Marketing Director for Eagle Eye Power Solutions, and welcome to our podcast, DC Power Hour, the show where we will discuss everything related to, you guessed it, critical DC power solutions. So charge up, power on, or do whatever it takes to get yourself excited for the episode of DC Power Hour. another episode of DC Power Hour. We're excited that we've hit a milestone. We're over a thousand unique listeners. So thanks to everybody out there who is finding some value and listening to the Battery Blarney duo. And we're happy to, to keep going here and provide as much information as we can. And please feel free to reach out like Ron did from Western Farmers Co-op and let us know if you have some questions for the guys. So Good morning, George, and good morning, Alan. Welcome to another show, and we're excited to, to get into this here. We're kind of going to look back at some of the history of the, the DC power industry that you guys are both well aware of, and then we're going to look forward to what's out there changing and what are the, the new rules, regulations, trends in the industry, and, and we'll have our, our good pal, Andrew Charlton, joining the program here in a little bit. So let's get into it. How's it going, George? Going pretty well. I'll start here with just a, a little bit of a reminiscing here that I'm starting to feel like the, the way Alan and I feel about all of this reminds me of a, a flight I was on in a VC-10 coming back to the UK from Saudi Arabia. And we got diverted to Cairo because there was a sandstorm at Jeddah and we couldn't land. And uh, so we had to wait in Cairo to pick up passengers. But we got the opportunity. Those were the days when you could actually get to the cockpit and see it. And I ended up going and visiting the cockpit because there was only about six of us on board on that part of the flight. And the flight engineer on that flight said this was his last VC-10 flight because he was going to become the flight engineer on Concorde. He was going to go a training course in Concorde. About six months later, I happened to be another British Airways flight, and there was an article about him. And it turned out that he had been, during the war, he'd actually been working on balloons and they made this point that he had gone from balloons to Concorde as a flight engineer. And I'm starting to feel that's a little bit like the way Alan and I are. You know, we seem to have started at the very beginning and uh, we're still learning. That's the key part of it. So what do you think of that for a start, Mr. Byrne? Well, you're right, George. Uh, I never thought of it that way. But first of all, let me thank David for letting us know we had over 1,000 listeners. And I would like personally like to thank my extended family for some small contribution to that, I guess. But anyway, you're right, George. Uh, when we first started, it was in telecom and communications, as you know. And that industry sector was really the innovator of a lot of stuff that's happening to this day. And at the time, was the largest user of stationary batteries with respect to industry sector. And the first started off with telecom. That sector was in the United States controlled by a couple of organizations, Western Electric and, and Belcor. And the things were pretty well regulated and defined. For instance, the 48 volts that's used today, to this day in telecom, that started off because 50 volts nominal was determined to be a safe working voltage. And you and I, George, when we first started, that was the case, and here we are, I guess, 50 years later, and it's still the same voltage that's been used for telecom. But as I said, telecom is pretty well regulated and defined uh, by various organizations, including the manufacturing of the equipment. You, you've heard of the 
NEBS, Network Equipment Building Standards. Well, some of that's re- retained until today. And to me, that was, that was a great thing, you know, to find various things from how you would build equipment right down to how the equipment should operate with respect to EMI, electromagnetic interference, radiation, and that. But the industry in the late 70s, early 80s, got it moving out of the central office into the network. And certain changes were made, but at the same time, the 1983, as you well remember, George, Judge Green's decision to allow competition to the uh, Bell companies, companies like MCI started evolving, and they weren't bound by the same regulations as the strictly regulated Bell operating companies were. And that's where changes started happening. And I know you're very familiar with that, George, so maybe we can talk about some of the changes that started happening in the telecom sector, and then we can move on to completely unregulated information technology sector, the UPS technologies, and the utilities, which are pretty much regulated as well. So over to you, George. Okay. Thanks, Alan. As you know, I'm very, very familiar with some of the problems of, shall we say, MCI's modified engineering standards. Although they, they did have a set of detailed engineering standards, it's just they were developed after they put a number of the sites in place because they wanted to get service up and running. As a result, you know, their idea of a of a termination bus and distribution was two large copper plates on the wall with all the batteries and all the chargers connected to it at some of their major sites, which gave me some problems on occasions, but that's beside the point. But no, it's I'll come back to to the NEBS point just for a second, because it's an interesting you should mention it. The from an installer's point of view, which is how we started off in the business, NEBS made a lot of sense. You knew where everything was. It was all going to be the same. You know, it was all going to stick out the back of the rack at the same space. You could plan how to run cables. And you could do all the rest of it. And the connections were going to be within Belcor standards. Now, later in my career, when I got onto the of actually helping run a, a design team, building DC power systems, the challenges of NEBS becomes another direction because it makes it a lot more difficult to innovate because you're, you're, you're stuck to certain, you know, things that you have to do. But then, as you said, we moved the telephone s- switch out of the centre of town and into little yellow boxes stuck outside subdivisions. And some of them were underground in California where they didn't like the look of them. So the whole design of, of the power system for that changed again. And then we moved into the cellular industry and designs changed again. And they continue to change. And that's something I'd like to talk about in more detail a little bit later. But the problem we're at now, I think, is the fact that we are we don't really have a design format any longer. Would you agree with that? Yeah. And you, interesting, you mentioned the uh, cellular industry, which you and I were both heavily involved with. And we saw some of the disasters that happened as they started to roll out. Some of the independent companies started to roll out some of these uh, cellular networks, cellular sites. One of the challenges we had there, ironically, was that the cellular radio industry, or the cellular industry, grew out of the uh, mobile radio industry. And what were the batteries? They weren't 48 volts. They were 24 volts. And they weren't positively grounded like the traditional telecom. They were negatively grounded. So we had a whole slew of other standards. And then we had some microwave thrown in and that some of that worked off 90 volts. So 
uh, here we have all these various industry sectors coming together, but no standard, no common way of powering. So that, that created a headache, but you know, we worked through that. And then with the advent of some of the independent telephone switch manufacturers, one of them we did a lot of work with George, as you know, was Rome, R-O-L-M. They brought out AC-powered telephone switches because they were selling telephone switches into the customer premise, not to a central office or to a, you know one of these uh, nodes out in the networks, but they wanted the customer to be able to power the telephone switch directly from their utility power. So here we had telephone switches that were going into customer premise for the building networks, for their own personal telephone communications networks, and they could be powered either AC or DC. So some customers on the cheap said, well, we can just plug it straight into the utility. And that created all sorts of problems. So there was a move to have a DC powered telephone switch, which kind of forced the customer into providing some sort of backup some sort of battery backup. And we worked through that as well. So over to you again, George. Yeah, I remember those days. That was that was when the, but it was, you know, that Rome switch was the early days of computerization of telephone switches in a big way. At, down at that level, not at, you know, we'd already got computerization within the main switching centers, but this was down there, you know, with the lots of fancy details and fancy phones. But one of the problems was that they needed to be able to operate the monitor and the and the keyboard in order to uh, access the, the the switch. So even if we had a DC switch, we still had to supply some form of AC in order to power the AC driven. You know, these were the days when VDUs were uh, AC powered, not five volts. That was another challenge because uh, you had to try and make sure that people didn't plug things into the wrong sockets and all that sort of problem. But we won that one as well in the end. Yeah, the other funny thing about that you might remember, George, is that they uh, brought out voicemail, phone mail, voicemail. Yes. And that had to be AC powered. So here you had telephone switch with, with DC powered, uh, with battery backup sized for, well, they were smart for about three or four hours reserve. And they weren't regulated as well as the telephone companies because telephone regulated telephone companies had to provide at least four hours battery backup or sometimes longer if they carried 911 service. But these independents, personal branch exchanges didn't have to do that. So you could have a switch backed up with three hours battery backup, say, but the voicemail had to have AC backup. And unless you're engineered and sized properly, you would, you would end up with the losing the voicemail. And sometimes the, uh, as you said, the, the, the keyboard, the, and the switches should still be up and running. But maybe that's a good segue for us to go into the UPS industry, which same same time period, I would say the early 1980s, uh, started moving from large mainframes into a smaller computer systems out in the network. And maybe you can talk about what happened there, George. What happened was that the um, basically the, uh, the UPS systems got smaller. And there was a, we were having to deal with AC and batteries in places that we didn't used to put power systems, you know. I remember some of the first and earliest jobs you came to me when I finally joined you in the U.S. was up in New York. And all of a sudden, I had to learn about floor loading 
as to how to put a large battery into the 32nd floor of a tower block in New York and not have it go crashing through three floors below. You know, they were they, they were just added to the challenges of the installation. And the other thing you had, the other problem we had once we did that and put it into these type of faces was people putting an extension cord in and plugging other things into it that loaded the system even higher and that was not designed to do. You know, just a few of the minor things that you came across. But the, the, main, the main thing I found out, George, is that these smaller computer systems you know, went from large mainframes down to small systems was that they were all AC powered. So to provide a battery backup, you couldn't use the traditional architecture of a DC power system where you have brought in AC to some rectifier chargers and then converted it to DC and then ran everything off the DC. Now you had to provide battery backup with AC output, as which brought in all these UPSs into the market. And the battery backup system, traditionally for the telecom industry, because of previous regulations for providing four hours battery reserve, they said, we didn't need, we don't need four hours battery reserve. All we need is enough battery reserve to ride through intermittent power outages, small power outages, or if the power outage was going to be extended, to give us enough time to perform an orderly shutdown on the, on the computer system. So they kind of homed in on 15-minute batteries. And, and this had an impact on the battery industry as well, because now the battery industry prior to, I'd say, 1980s, maybe a little bit earlier, most of their stationary battery output for battery backup was, you know, the medium to long duration batteries. So now you had to come up with some batteries that were the sweet spot was 15 minutes or somewhere around there. So mm-hmm. we had two types of batteries coming out. And, and one very company we, we worked with, and you well know this, George, to me, that was one of the best in naming rights that they come out with because they called their short-duration battery the Sprinter and the long-duration battery the Marathon. You remember that? So Yeah, that was, that was clever marketing. And, you know, I have other viewpoints of that particular battery on occasions, but we'll, we'll stay away from that. But, yeah, they, you know. So some of them have sprinted a bit faster than you wanted to. Well, talk about clever marketing. At the same time happened, as this was all happening, the customer said, well, we don't want these nasty batteries with electrolyte flashing around inside them. We want something that's more user-friendly. We want something that's smaller, something that's lighter, something that's cheaper, something that doesn't require maintenance. And lo and behold, the industry came out with one of the greatest marketing ploys I thought ever happened and it was a complete oxymoron to come up with a sealed maintenance-free battery. And uh, that gave rise to a whole set of other problems because there was a lot of teething problems in those days. And maybe you can talk a little bit about that, George, but what that whole thing gave rise to, as you know, uh, I was involved with the IEEE back in the early 90s and that gave rise to a whole new set of IEEE battery standards geared particularly towards GPS batteries, IEEE 1184, and of course, our old friends, IEEE 1187, 1188, 1189, which were geared towards uh, valve regulated lead-acid batteries. So there was a lot of activity, and it was good activity because it you know, tried to cover the evolving trends in, in the industry. So maybe you can talk a little bit, not so much about that, George, 
But leading into that, what was happening with the new UPS architectures and the batteries? Well, one of, one of the things that was happening was that uh, within the within the UPSs, uh, when we you know we started and uh, when um, the uh, when we were using inverters to power the AC part for the small telephone switches, it was basically what you know it was always conditioned power. In other words, the the inverter sat there and it produced power, and that was it. The only time that the customer would ever see uh, utility power is if you were having to do maintenance and you had to put it onto a backup, you know, switch over to backup. But in order to increase efficiency, the UPS manufacturers came up with the idea that they could semi-power condition the output voltage and actually run it on utility and then only fall back to battery or back to the uh, the DC power side of it in the event of a power failure. And that had its own series of problems, especially especially on the piece of equipment you're powering because the transfer time might be too long in some cases. Uh, that was another of the, the problems. But I, the, you put, coming back very quickly to the idea of it being sealed maintenance-free, you know, that probably is the worst thing that ever was ever said about a battery. Because a lot of the customers to this day continue to refer to it and say, well, why do we have to do maintenance? Because this is a sealed battery. And yet, as you well know, the maintenance of a, a VLA battery is a lot more critical than it was on the old vented lead asset. But I see that our colleague Andrew has joined us, stopped selling things for a few minutes, and he's going to talk to us about where he sees and what he's seeing out there. Because Andrew's Andrew's the, Andrew's the guy in the company that is out there talking to the customers at the grassroots of this. And he's the one that's producing a lot of questions. And some of them, I think we'll find when we talk to him, is that almost taking us back to where we started because things have changed so much. So welcome, Andrew. I'd like to welcome Andrew as well, but also say that Andrew's, a lot of Andrew's exposure to customers is at the utility utility industries. I'm talking about electrical utility, maybe oil, gas. And that's an, that's an industry sector that hasn't changed much, George, you know, with respect uh-huh. to the char- chargers they use, with respect to the batteries they use. So we're slowly getting to, them to move over from the old SCR chargers, silicon control rectifier chargers, to the newer, more reliable, more efficient, more user-friendly uh, switch mode rectifiers. But uh, anyway, hi, Andrew. What, what are the customers out there? What are they saying to you? Well, hey, guys. Well, thanks for having me on. Appreciate being here. And uh, thanks for pointing that out too, Alan, because that really is uh, a lot of what we're doing at Eagle Eye right now is a lot of critical backup facilities, utilities, both from the power generation and transmission distribution side. So not saying that we, we're not out there in the field with other applications, but as you guys know very well, that industry is kind of a unicorn in, in how it goes about approaching and updating its equipment comparatively to what are, some of the other industries are doing. For example, you know, the modular high-frequency switch mode, we see that heavily used in other industries, um, and it's a slow adoption here in the utility sector. And, and the conversations are much different with a, an electrical utility than it is with a private entity even. So, yeah, we can go anywhere you guys would like to go on some of that. But what we're seeing a lot right now with that I'm out in the field is exactly what you talked about, Alan, is there's a lot of push for grid modernization, as it's being labeled, where a lot of utilities have aging infrastructure, 
aging gear and they're trying to bring up that gear to a level that's suitable for 2022 and, and really beyond knowing some of the sweeping changes that are going to be coming with really high adoption of renewables EVs and some of those different backup sources that are are coming online daily. You know, as I mentioned, you mentioned, Andrew, the uh, evolving switch mode rectifiers, talking about, you know, fan cooled and uh, convection cooled. George, I know, was very heavily involved in the design of some of that stuff when he was, uh, well, I believe it was chief engineer at Advanced Power, George. I'm not sure your job title. But could you briefly talk us through the evolution from SCR ferro-resonant to the switch mode rectifiers and why it happened. The, the reason it happened w- w- was was very simple. When we talked about uh, taking the uh, central office switches out to the um, the actual network and putting them into the, the yellow boxes at the end of subdivisions, the uh, yes, they wanted the uh, smaller batteries, the VLA batteries, so that they didn't have to top them up with water. But at the same time, people got upset about these yellow boxes. You know, today you don't see it as much. But uh, in the early days of that, I can remember, you know, arguments and fights about they didn't want that yellow box in there because it made the place look untidy. And uh, so the objective was to try and keep it as small as possible. And that meant they did not need or want SCR chargers in there because the amount of power they required was more than, you know, it meant a very large charger. So that was the, that was the, why the switch mode came into being, and um, many things that was developed. Did actually the, the the manufacturers knew how to make switch mode power supplies before that, but the the idea of building rectifiers with them were new, and the the very original switch mode rectifiers that were done were actually convection cooled. They were not fan cooled, and they were they, some of the very earliest ones were actually designed by the company I ended up being, I think my official title was Director of Engineering at Advance, but Advance was a combination of the two two of the companies that had had the contract from British Telecom to design these particular chargers. And uh, as I said, they were convection cooled, but then, you know, they were, and compared to anything else, they were very small. But then as people wanted to, uh, they still wanted more space. The idea was that, you know, more space in that. They want to put more circuits into these boxes. The concept of fan cooled started. Now, interesting enough, Andrew mentioned the fact that we are uh, we're not in a you know we're still in the position of trying to move the utility industry here over to uh, switch mode. It was similar actually in Europe. Once we started to develop and build fan cooled rectifiers, which almost half the size of them, to be honest, one of the challenges was that the utilities would not accept them. They still wanted convection cooled because they didn't trust fans. Fans did not have enough long enough life for them. And that was probably the biggest challenge we had. Uh, the telecom industry accepted it much, much faster. Uh, they, you know, they, they were happy with fans. Uh, and today, uh, it's, you, know, you don't find that many convection cooled. We, we have one because there are still utilities and there are still places where they're better off. Some of the generating plants with coal dust you prefer a convection cooled rectifier than one with a fan that's sucking every bit of dirt in and covering the whole of the electronics. You know, the two don't go together too well. But that's where we've moved out to. But there are still the, you know, you, you, talk, you talk about the SCR, but we had a controlled ferro before that, and we had the magnetic amplifier, the MagAmp uh, chargers. We're still making some of those today. 
Uh, we're not, but the other there are is the one company in the states that builds uh, the whole range of this stuff from mag amps all the way through to uh, to switchboard, and it's because each one has a specific application that it's good at. The biggest problem I see with uh, the SCR chargers at this moment in time is trying to get them fixed. You know, when you and I were doing it, when when you had me as a service tech, that was a long time ago. You know, you used to send me out, and it was a case of if there was something wrong with the charger, I had to fix it. Today, I doubt you find MD fixing a charger. They they might get, send it back to the manufacturer for repair, but most times they simply take it off the wall and put another one in place. You know, the idea of going out and fixing it and have a, a box full of uh, PCBs and, uh, you know, trying to change output capacitors and stuff like that just doesn't happen any longer. So that's one of the ways that the industry has changed. Yeah, Andrew, it'd be interesting to find out from you. The, are there still pushbacks with respect to employing switch mode rectifiers? You know, the particular brand that, that we make is, uh, you know, the convection cool one. Is there still a pushback, Andrew, or are people starting to accept them? They're definitely starting to accept them. And, and I think, you know, George, you pointed out a few key items there. I think, you know, even the way that our, ours looks. It doesn't have to look the way that it looks. It looks that way because historically, that is what customers have accepted. There, there's a lot of different ways and, des- and design points that you could do with a modular product. But the way that we've designed it is in a sense to accommodate some of that behavioral change within a client. And I think their hesitancy from utilities has always been fair because they're in a critical application where a failure in reliability is of utmost importance, right? We can't have any failures. So the reason why you still see people making some of those older technology chargers is because utilities across the board are slow to change over to a newer technology. They want to see a good track record. They want to see the proven uh, capabilities of it, the longevity of it. They understand. I talk to customers often, and they understand the, the added benefits of a modular charger, not losing load, you know, the ease on technicians to install something um, where you can pull out half the weight of the charger, install it mounted on the wall, and then put those back in there once it's up in commission. So I think, you know, to be perfectly honest with you, Alan, I think a lot of the change is because there is a lot of new engineers that are in the field, more now than I've ever seen, where there, there is a changeover and a lot of younger engineers are starting to get into the field. They're reviewing all aspects of the substation as they build out and expand substations of, hey, what is each piece of equipment in there? Okay, is that in there because it's been specced in there for several years or is it in there because it's the most superior product? And I think they're kind of looking at it, in my opinion, from a fresh set of eyes, so to speak. And, and that's really where we've had a lot of our successes is with those different utilities that are employing that. And then as you build those success stories up, you can then go to some of of the older utilities, maybe they're smaller, maybe they're cooperative, um, where they've kind of always had something and said, hey, let me show you some successes that other utilities are doing it. Here's how they've saved, you know, having to send a technician out or having a site go down by using this different modular technology. Maybe they no longer need a secondary charger in the system because they've just got this one in here with these modular power modules. So there's a lot that I think is changing. I I don't know exactly where all the change has, has come from. If it's a pressure based on where the market is going, where the 
where the utilities are going, or if it's because they're, they're really looking at these substations from an eye point of how do we modernize this within the utility. Excellent point, Sandra. I'll bring George into the conversation with you uh, because there's something else that's happened, as you know, and it's called uh, oversight by NERC and by FERC, or FERC and NERC as I call them. And that's they've introduced two particular uh, documents, once our old friend PRC005 and also another document, newer document, which I'm going to let George talk about briefly, and that's TPL, George. They having an impact on the utility industry to the way they design systems, the way they maintain them? Yes, amazingly so. They are definitely, they're going to have to. But it's not just that. You alluded when we started talking to Andrew that, you know, the utilities are are on their own and we, we, are tele- we have a telecom back, but, you know, the utilities aren't involved in that. Well, not quite true. Things have changed very dramatically. You walk into a substation today and you're going to see at least one telecommunications rack just in order to handle grid modernization and all the, the challenges that go with it. So there is, there's a telecom element within every substation now, some more complex than others. Sometimes they are standalone. It, it all depends on the way the utility is structured. But in some cases, the telecom and the actual substation people don't really talk to each other very much. The, uh, the main substation battery actually goes to the telecom rack as well and uses a DC to DC converter to, to power it so that they... The main battery powers everything. Other ones, you will find a separate, uh, complete separate DC system for the uh, for the telecom rack. And there's absolutely no standardization there, believe me. And the t- quite often, one of the problems I've seen is that the grounding system within the substation doesn't quite match what it needs to be in order to guarantee good telecom communications, you know. So uh, there, there's no doubt there are problems at some of those. But that's not the only thing. TPL was just wanted. You're right. What they're asking there is they now want the utility or the FERC and NERC have said there will be redundancy at all levels within the network, and they they put this edict out uh, that's under the TPL one standard that the networks have got to work on achieving this at all levels. How do they achieve redundancy? How do they achieve that you can't just one piece of equipment failure can take a whole substation down. And then the, the latest version of it, 005, the Dash 005, they stipulated that they either want the DC power system to be fully redundant, in other words, dual chargers, dual charge or non-redundant charging, and dual batteries. And, and that's a, a major challenge in itself. But they will allow you to do monitoring. And as long as you can monitor the voltage, and battery continuity, they will accept that. But you have to report it to a network operating centre with the, within the 24-hour cycle. That's what they're requiring as part of that process. But that brings us to a next set of challenges because if you take the battery monitor that's going to do this monitoring and meet the TPL 001's capability, that's going to be a battery monitor. Within a lot of the utilities, and as we sell battery monitors, I always have sold battery monitors, as you well know, as a standalone item. That battery monitor then will not be on the really secure network. But what the battery monitoring is producing in the report has to be reported on the secure network in order to comply with TPL001. So now, not only are we having to look at our battery monitor, but we're getting involved 
in how to understand the cyber security requirements for the utilities. And this is something that Andrew has been bugging me on this week in part because of something a customer's come up with and asking about. And it's 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 taking it's taking us to the next level because the within the utilities themselves, they don't have a lot of experience on cybersecurity. So they're asking us how to do it. And you know, so this is taking we're moving the power system into a much more, almost a more important part, a, more, a better understood part, just for the utility. But this applies every place now. Think about the the problem they had with that uh, power line, you know, the, the the pipeline that was taken down and all the, the through cyber attacks. You know, the the DC power plant at every level within the, any industry at the present moment becomes more and more important. I'd love Andrew to talk about that, but then I've I've got a, another migration question. Uh, for Andrew, but uh, you're right about cybersecurity, George. And, and one job I was involved with, I think you were probably familiar with it, was installing a part of the thing was uh, installing a large battery monitoring system for a particular customer. And after everything was installed, and the technician asked, "Okay, how do I connect it to your network?" And the answer was, "Oh, you're not taking it outside this room, are you?" And there was a the battery monitoring system, but they couldn't monitor it. So anyway, Andrew, we'd like to comment on what George talked about. Yeah, and, and you guys, George, you really touched on a point that actually brought me back to Alan's earlier question about, you know, people adapt adopting the modular equipment. And one thing that you kind of touched on that made me think about this is is segmentation within the utility facilities themselves. Like you mentioned, there'll be battery systems in there and, and I'll be standing there with a transmission distribution engineer and I'll say, Hey, what about the system over there? Oh, that that's communications. We don't, we don't monitor that system. We don't touch that system. I, I, I couldn't tell you the details. And I, quite frankly, I don't know who would be maintaining that system. So there's almost a disconnect within certain utilities as an entity within their own substation sometimes. And, and I'm sure some people would be upset that I even said that, but that's that's one thing that I've seen. In fact, we have a, a large customer that has over 500 actual substations and two different divisions within that. And we're working with them on the NERC PRC battery monitoring compliance. Now there's a whole nother engineering subset within their TND side of their business that handles their non-NERC substations, which are very critical, right? And But they may not fall under specifically NERC PRC-005. But that was a completely different conversation to come in there, sit down with their entire engineering group and say, okay, what about the battery systems at these facilities? They, they don't fall under NERC guidance or compliance, but they're still critical pieces of equipment backing up your entire network. Um, so having a separate conversation with them on battery monitoring. And then within that same utility, there's a third conversation with the engineering group that's handling the comms communica- communication equipment at certain facilities. So just within one entity, you're looking at three different groups that necessarily aren't always even talking to each other about what equipment they're putting in, why they're putting the equipment in, what good and bad experiences have they had. So when you talk about slow adoption, Alan, I, I look at that. I look at, hey, you're having three different conversations on the, potentially the same piece of equipment within the utility and making a business case for each one of them. And then as you alluded to, now, now a lot of the conversation has somewhat moved away from what is the hardware? I remember I used to have a lot of conversations, you know, walking through various 
parts of the hardware, how it's installing on the system, you know, in, in different aspects. Now, so much of our conversations with clients are cybersecurity, integration into the network, accessing data, backing up data, a, a lot of that. And, and there's usually some high-end IOTs uh, and, and consultants in there. And then also a lot more customers are u- utilizing asset management software systems of various types. There's a lot of them out there. So then it's, okay, how do we, are we automating that in there? How does it change our the way that we're doing maintenance? How do we actually comply with each aspect of these different compliances that we're doing? So I think it's the complexity within the utility itself has really led to this. And, and I don't, Cybersecurity and SIP has definitely come on. I can tell you that some of the the more modern wars that we've seen where cyber attacks from entities have definitely popped up more in conversations as those have continued to come on in recent years. Can I just have a second there, Alan, just to be able to add to Andrew's comment there, because there can sometimes be a fourth element to that utility especially in some of the smaller ones where they're also a telecom company. They actually, they use their own network in order to provide internet service to businesses, typically very seldom to the the public, but they do it to businesses because they have the high capacity optics. A lot of them carry the optics in the ground wire at the top of the pylons. So they use that capacity so that you, you then end up having, you know, a totally different set of engineers and, and they're working at telecom standards. And, you know, I actually did a training course for one of them where I almost got the, uh, the two sides to get really into an argument because we were talking about sizing DC cables and the electrician said, Oh, you just take it up another gauge. And the telecom guys were uh, getting very upset about that because that's not how you do it. You know, you have to size the cable correctly. It was, it was that type of thing that the lack of, lack of knowledge and understanding between them. Uh, you know, it, it's changed since you were in the active field, let me tell you. Well, George, you know, I'm just thinking, Andrew said that is very true. And you almost have to be what we were 40 odd years ago. You have to be not so much a, a vendor or supplier of equipment. You have to be a consultant. You have to be a design engineer. You have to be a systems engineer. You have to be a sales engineer to do this. And I think that's one way our company, you know, with people like Andrew, is is really on the call face again because we have the capabilities of doing that. You know, we don't have a an agenda in you got to use this product. You know, we we got a range of products to meet with the requirement. And and something else that's that's coming out. Uh, I've seen some of the utilities I visited up, up until a couple of years ago. Is their reluctance to install any equipment? that's not manufactured in the United States or North America. So that, that restricts choices as well. But in, in some of the time that we have left, we, we've so much to talk about. I think we have to have another session on, on standards, George. But I'd like to ask Andrew another question. Uh, there's a also a reluctance within the utility industry to go over to VRLA batteries. The batteries of choice is still the rented lead-acid battery. Andrew, are, are you seeing any change in this as VRLA batteries have come, become somewhat more reliable, somewhat more predictable, and with monitoring, you know, online monitoring, some more friendly, shall we say. So are you seeing any change in this in the utility industry, Andrew? 
100%. In, in fact, it, it actually amazes me the different utilities of, of where they are in this decision life cycle. As I like to look at it is we, we talk to a variety of different sizes from municipalities to cooperatives to large IOUs, both state and federal entities. And it seems like throughout the industry, there is a flip-flopping between the two different chemistries and the two different designs. You have certain utilities that have sworn off VRLA, you have certain utilities that have sworn off VLA, and then you have a lot that are kind of falling in between where they have some at, of both types at different facilities or they're in the process of switching from one to the other. And I think th th that's a really complex decision point for a lot of utilities. Some of it is the uh, actual footprint within their facilities is shrinking in the newer facilities, so they need something with the tightest footprint that they can get. Sometimes it's cost-based as well. There's a lot of switchgear manufacturers out there more now than I've ever seen building, and what they're doing is, is they're going out there, quite honestly, and trying to find often the cheapest piece of equipment that they can that fulfills the specifications. So often where that comes into play is you'll get a, a brand new switch gear or, or control facility produced for you. And often I'll see a VRLA system in there. And then a client, you know, 10 years down the line, they're looking to change that over. Often they'll want to switch it into VLA. But there's been some really great improvements from what I've seen. You know, there's some really reputable brands. You know, we work with Intersys a lot on their DDM product, have had a great track record. It's got an amazing footprint. It's got a 20-year design life, just a tremendous product. We install that a lot and pair it with our vigilant battery monitoring system as a complete turnkey package for a lot of utilities, especially those that are shrinking within their footprint that they're trying to get. But then you have what I believe you know, the, the VLA product still has a tremendous spot, especially when it's going in to replace a VLA existing product. There's really no reason that I've ever seen to change that, especially some of the products that are out there to lower your watering levels or like our Vigilant, which monitors the watering levels. So great answer, Andrew. That also something else I find is, is happening is that, you know, in the old days, a system was designed in the telecom industry, even in the UPS industry, and certainly the utility industry, was designed to last about 20 years. You know, we're going to install this equipment, we're going to have it for 20 years. Therefore, we need a battery that's going to last 20 years. Vented lead acid batteries, if properly treated, it could last 20 years. But, you know, another side of the thing is that people are now starting, technology is changing so fast, really, really, really fast. So they're saying, well, no, there's going to be something new out in five years and seven years. You know, do we really need to design for 20 years when everything is going to change? When we might, we're putting in a new UPS system, we're going to be putting in a complete new system. Somebody, somebody's going to buy us and we're going to become a different type company. Utility companies, as you really know, getting big into the uh, renewable energy with all these uh, wind farms, solar farms they're putting in. So, you know, I see the need is not there to design a system you know, for 20 years, you know, we need to be looking at modularity so we can change things very quickly. And that includes batteries. There's some battery technology that come out very, very promising. I'm not talking about lithium, but there are other technologies that could be a game changer. So, you know, do I want to be stuck with a battery that's going to last me for 20 years when I'm going to have to change it out? Not because the battery's 
defective but because something else is on the market. So if you and George would both comment on that, we're probably running out of time, but I, I would love to have another session, David, where we talk about evolving standards as well. I'll take a couple of that minute up, David. I've just you just told me we've got five minutes left. But one of the things we talked about is the past here. And we do we should always talk about the future as well, you know. Um, and there's sometimes the old guys have to come back and say, been there, done that. And you brought that up earlier, that when we were in the industry in the early days of it, you were everything from consultant, engineer, designer. The whole power system industry when we started was completely modular in its own way, in that you you built distribution and rectifiers and you put them in racks and you tied them all together with a piece of copper, depending on where you placed them. And that was the way it was. And then as the cellular industry grew, we lost, the, we stopped that ability and it was decided it was much better to build these complete package deals offshore because they were cheaper considering the volumes of stuff people were looking for. And that was exactly what happened. And the number of times when I've been doing training and actually any of these places where they, were, they had telecom and power together, the comments I always got was that we can't get what we actually need. You know, you, they would have a, a, a modular unit there that was, you know, fixed, and this was all they could get out of it. So you'd maybe see a, a modular unit and then another distribution panel attached to it. And, they, you know, so maybe what we need to do is actually go back where we used to be, and let's go back to a true modular system that can be, it's not just modular in the sense that it's all in one package. It's modular in the sense that it can be built in a different format. And if we look at today's problems of supply chain, which bothers us all at this moment in time, and you made the comment about people want to see equipment made in the USA, maybe it's time for our whole industry to sit back and think and say, how can we do this better? And I'm going to make a suggestion that I think a few people might criticize me for, but we could actually get to the point with modern printing, the 3D printing capabilities and the modern materials they're getting now, if we can print blades for jet engines on 3D printing and some of the modern plastics, we could actually have customized systems that you only, you know, you actually print it in the shop and then just add the copper to it and the other bits and pieces. They could once you got them designed, you could do it that way. You could build a system to suit MD. The supply chain would be your story of um, basically copper bar and plastic. And I think that's where we may have to start looking at because with the with the whole problems of cybersecurity and everything else, we're going to be continually people wanting to change things. What's your thoughts on that, Andrew? I completely agree with a lot of that. I- I'm a big proponent of modular products in, in different aspects, things that you can size up, size down, uh, plug and play type of equipment, universal designed equipment. You know, we've done a lot with some of our different products that we offer for that exact thing. And I think what it does is it puts a lot of the power back in, in the customer's hands. Uh, it lowers what they're investing in as far as what they need to carry around with them for spares, what they need to actually have in their warehouses. It also lends to what I believe a lot of the power network is going to be like as more and more renewables come on to play. I think there's going to be a lot more local distribution going on with larger cities. So there's going to be a need to be able to easily plug and play equipment within those different smaller networks, be able to increase 
those pieces of equipment within those different facilities in an easy manner rather than complete rebuilds? How can we add, subtract, change, or improve the reliability at each one of those facilities as it becomes more localized and a lot more distribution comes into play within the future? So I do agree with with your sense there of, of bringing that home and, and not having some of this kind of fixed equipment that's out there. But it does in my opinion, take a lot of investment and it takes a takes a company or companies really to step up and to really embrace that mindset again. Your thoughts on that, Alan, very quickly? Okay, I, I, we, we can wrap it up. I could go on and on and choke at you and choke at Andrew, I know that. But this, I think, takes going to take another podcast uh, where we, we talk about some of the futuristic things, but also something that's near and dear to my heart, and that's codes and standards and where they're where they're heading. So uh, like most of our podcasts, we, we don't have enough time to talk about what we all want to talk about or what comes into, you know, I, I know George is probably like me. I don't do any prep work for this. I just take the conversation where it goes, but you know, we need to talk a lot more about this, but I, I would like to thank Andrew for taking time out of his busy day. I know he does a lot of road work and Andrew, you, you do what George and I did years and years ago, but you do it very well. I will say that. So thanks over to you, David, to, to wrap it up. Yep. Sounds great. Yeah. Great conversation, guys, and, and to be continued. So we'll have to revisit some of these topics where we left off today, no doubt. So thanks to all three of you for, for joining the show, and we'll talk to you next time. Have a great day. We hope you can join us next time. And in the meantime, if you have any questions for the Battery Blarney Duo or anything else you want us to discuss in next week's episode, please email us at info at eepowersolutions.com. Thanks again for listening. Talk to you then.